You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hello there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. And here we go with episode 63, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. So it's a cool and damp May morning here at So Much Pingle World Headquarters um, after a day and night of rain showers, and uh, my perennial garden is starting to look pretty good. It's starting to green up nicely. Now, episode 63 happens to be another installment of Herp Science Sunday with my pal, Dr. Alex Crone. And it features Dr. Drew Davis. And I want to say congratulations to Alex and Allie on the birth of their son, Theo. Everyone is doing great, and I'm so happy for you all. Yeah, just sleep when you can. And a big thank you to all of the patrons of the show who have got us this far, and we'll keep things rolling forward into the future. And if you're listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pinglin. So much pinglin is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. Now, before we get to Alex and Drew, I want to mention the upcoming Compass Herpetology Summer Camp at Montreat College, which is near Asheville, North Carolina. And the camp is run by my friend and co-author, Professor Josh Holbrook, who teaches you know, biology and ecology at Montreat. And it is open to high school students. So the camp will be held from June 19th through the 24th with an optional week extension through the uh, July 1st. So this herpetology camp is designed for those who enjoy getting their hands dirty and maybe getting their feet wet uh, and have a uh, strong interest in nature. The students will explore the amazing world of amphibians and reptiles through a blend of classroom and field sessions. And we all love those field sessions. They will encounter a variety of animals up close to learn about the ecology and conservation of amphibians and reptiles. Uh, I think there's some field trips involved, too. And if, so if you're a high school student or you know and with an interest in herps, here's an opportunity to combine cool herps with applied science. So for more information, visit montreat.edu slash compass, and Montreat is M-O-N-T-R-E-A-T, or see the episode 63 show notes for the appropriate links. Okay, so let's get moving with this installment of Herp Science Sunday. So our guest this week is Dr. Drew Davis, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. And on today's show, Drew describes the details of a drone survey project along the Rio Grande drainage in South Texas, uh, which the survey looked for, you know, presence and numbers of the Rio Grande cooter, uh, Sudemis gorzugi. Uh, which is a, a species of concern in Texas. And the, the results are published in a PLOS-1 research article entitled A Drone-Based Survey for Large Basking Freshwater Turtle Species. And the, the four authors are Amy P. Bagolin, Drew R. Davis, Richard J. Klein, and Abdullah F. Rahman. So there's a link in the show notes where you can download a PDF of the paper. And, uh, you know, this one is open access, so it should be easy to get. Or you can still just drop me a note and I will email you a copy. 
Alex and I also talk with Drew about his work as the editor-in-chief for Herp Review. And uh, so, wow, you know, I really enjoyed all 82 minutes of the interview. So let's get to it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And this is another edition of Herp Science Sunday. And with me on the program today, we have Dr. Alex Crone, who is the, let me get this right, because it's a big, long title. He's the Director of Conservation Genomics at Tangled Bank Conservation. Uh, and I don't think there's too many Director of Conservation Genomics running around, folks. It's kind of a interesting and, and new kind of thing. And the other person on, on the line tonight is Dr. Drew Davis, who is at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley. Welcome to the show, Drew, and welcome back to the show, Alex. Thanks. Yeah, Thank glad you. to be here. Good. First of all, thanks for your time. I appreciate that. I know you guys are busy, and I appreciate you coming back on the show, Alex and uh, Drew, for the first time. Uh, it was good to, uh, Alex, of course, uh, you and I have seen each other a number of times, and Drew, uh, it was good to hang out with you recently, last fall, in South Texas for a little bit, Yeah, uh, on your home turf, so to speak, <laughs> so it was Kind of good to hang out and talk to you a bit. In fact, um, when I saw you down there uh, in South Texas, I, I had you know this brilliant idea that I, you had brought up this, this uh, a paper that you you are one of four authors on about uh, using drones to survey for uh, basking turtles along the, uh, the Rio Grande and other uh, drainages. And so right, right away, I was like, "Oh, we got to talk about that," and that would be a great thing to talk within a Herp Science Sunday format and get Alex in here and get his uh, questions and opinions on that. So, so that's what we're here to, the main thrust we have, we're going to talk about today is, is this paper. Um, so let me kind of lead us into the, into this, this, uh, this paper was published in, uh, let's see, October of uh, 2021. Has four authors, Amy, uh, I hope I got her name right, Bogolan, Drew Davis, Richard Klein, and Abdullah Rahman. Uh, and uh, it's titled A Drone-Based Survey for Large Basking Freshwater Turtle Species. And I guess the gist of it is, is you guys figured out ways to use drone technology to survey for turtles in aquatic situations. That is the gist, yes. Is that safe to say? <laughs> no, that is, that is accurate. <laughs> yeah. And uh, drones are used for everything these days. Um, and, of course, why not for uh, biology? And that they've had a number of different uses uh, besides just uh, turtles and things like that. I mean, they use them for studying vegetation and, uh, you know, cover and things like that. But um, what, uh, tell me uh, how this came to be, this project with the, with the turtles and the drones and and so forth. Sure. Yeah. Um, So it all, all began. um, So a couple of the the faculty here at UTRGV, uh, one of them, does quite a bit with drone-based imagery and, and sort of landscape and habitat work, you know, by flying a drone and, and, you know, also using satellite imagery, kind of this remote sensing framework. And the, the funding agency that we've uh, sort of were able to work with um, for this project, which was the Texas Comptroller of Public Account, uh, um, and uh, they sort of have a pot of money for, for endangered species research or, or trying to generate additional information on species that may be um, listed, kind of coming down the pipeline through the Fish and Wildlife Service. And they, you know, the, this species that we were after, Sudanese Gorzugi, which is a Rio Grande Cooter, was a candidate species for federal listing 
and we didn't know a lot about it. There were sort of some things, uh, anecdotal evidence and kind of um, hearsay about them declining on this landscape and being difficult to trap and we're not getting numbers that we used to and things like that. And so, you know, the comptroller was trying to put together some work to essentially go back out and, and kind of survey for this turtle species. And the comptroller gets really excited about new ways to, to do these things. And sort of, it was before I kind of started down here, but, but the, the PIs of the project uh, kind of had some discussions and thought, you know, I bet we could census these turtles with drones, um, you know, kind of having done some drone work before and, and kind of being familiar with that. But, you know, it had never really been done in a methodical way with turtles and so, yeah, we, one of the many things we did survey wise for this Rio Grande Cooter was, was flying a drone and, you know, seeing how that performed in in comparison to some of these more traditional survey methods, which are, would be things like visual surveys from the shoreline where, you know, people kind of stand and, and look through spotting scopes or binoculars kind of along a stretch of the river or, or you know, an aquatic habitat. And are just looking for turtles and counting and IDing turtles that way. Um, of course, the the main widely used method for censusing turtles is trapping. So you know, baited hoop traps being another method we employed. And we also um, did a lot of work with eDNA, environmental DNA, uh, in order to generate detections mm-hmm. of this turtle. Of course, eDNA is a little bit more challenging in the sense that we can't yet extrapolate sort of our detections to abundance. So it's simply presence absence. We can't, you know, we don't know if there's one turtle in this stretch of the river or there's 20 or, you know, and um, so it's not quite as comparable. It doesn't generate the same type of data that drones or, or um, trapping or visual surveys can do where they can actually generate this raw count data. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, so we, you know, received some funding and, and, um, and sort of, developed a protocol and and worked through this kind of worked out a lot of kinks there were there's still a lot to figure out even though drones have emerged on the landscape for wildlife survey methods you know there's still a lot of you know a, a lot of how they started where they were surveying for big things elephants right you know marine mammals yes. uh, whales <laughs> you know what i mean these are much bigger targets than than these turtles and so just really optimizing and figuring out what worked and and you know troubleshooting things that you know, that came up during our work was a, a big part of it. And and so we wanted to sort of put out uh, kind of a how-to, but a, a kind of a guideline, a framework of how hopefully people can sort of take this data and our framework of, of drone surveys and sort of tweak it and, and hopefully, you know, apply it in their own systems and their own habitats or, you know, uh, you know, different habitats across the U.S. or across the world where they're interested in surveying for turtles. So, Yeah. Okay. Uh, and Alex, okay, feel free to jump in there if you have any questions or comments, but my, my immediately what you flashed in my mind is, you know, this, yours is not, not the first methods paper we've talked about on the show. We, we've talked about other papers that sort of say, Hey, why not try this? And one I think about it is the Spadefoot toad paper we talked about Alex a while back. Definitely. With the I, I, I shine surveys at night, uh, which, uh, the, the folks not only, uh, published their data, but they published their how-to, how they, the methods they use and, and uh, you know, basically gave uh, 
a nice little uh, primer for whoever else wants to try this uh, in, in other parts of spadefoot toad range or perhaps with other species. So, so I, I, I get really excited about these papers too, because it's not just the data. It's also opening uh, the door to other people can, uh, can do similar things along similar lines and maybe use it for in different areas for different purposes. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what we, we found, you know, that, so, you know, you know, obviously drones have been used for a lot of other big terrestrial mammals and, and larger vertebrates, um, you know, sea turtles, there's, you know, been a fair amount on sea turtles, but again, they, some of these published works on, on sea turtles and even freshwater turtles, there was a, a little bit of work done, but they didn't present all of their data in a way that, um, a lot of the methods behind, or, you know what I mean? The sort of how, what they were flying at their, their drone flight speeds, you know, kind of. And so for, without having that information available, you know, it's sort of not as helpful, right? I mean, if we don't know that they had success flying two meters per second, you know, but faster than that, it was too blurry or they didn't get good imagery. You know, we just simply didn't know that from their published works. And a lot of it was published in the form of students thesis work, but we, you know, not having that information. And, and so we wanted to, of course, provide that information for others. And so, you know, we really tried to get into the the methods of what we did and and the sort of parameters and specifics of our drone flights, because there's a lot of settings and, um, and uh, <laughs> things you can tweak and adjust and really try to optimize. And of course, just because it worked for us in this one context, like doesn't mean that those are the exact same settings that you could do in, you know, the river in your backyard and, and with the turtle species that you have present. I mean, it doesn't mean that, but, but at least it kind of gives some of that information, at least a starting point for someone who's wanting to take these methods and then apply them um, to their own research. Well, you have lots of nuts and bolts in there, you know, the, the kind of drone, the kind of camera, <laughs> the capabilities of these things. So you also include some, some, you know, some of the issues you face with uh, batteries overheating and, equipment overheating because you are in South Texas and it might get hot once in a while. Um, <laughs> so I thought that was interesting too. Uh, yeah. But there's also another challenge to this in that, you know, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to gauge population sizes and, and uh, not just size, uh, where they occur, but maybe how many of them are on the river, but it's not the only turtle on the river that basks. You also have, Softshell turtles down there, uh, spiny softshells, and you have red-eared sliders uh, as well. So, um, so you've got uh, the issue of identifying the Sudamese Gorzugi amidst the other turtles. So you've got an identification issue as well. Yeah, absolutely. Fortunately for us, you know, aquatic uh, turtle species diversity in sort of the Rio Grande drainage is pretty limited. Um, you know, it's unfortunate on one hand, but also fortunate for this work. You know, we didn't have to to rule out a bunch of species or, or to really um, have really amazing photographs to really differentiate two very similar looking species. Um, right. One of the species you just said, spiny softshell, looks very different uh, from a dorsal aerial drone photo than than Trachemys uh, scripta and Pseudomys gorzugi. Right. Very different looking turtles. Um and that's very easy to identify on a, on a drone photo. And so we could very quickly say, yep, that's my okay. soft shells. And, and of course, you know, we, you know, even though the work was focused on, or kind of the, the impetus of this work was trying to find this Rio Grande Cooter, Sudamese Gorzugi. Of course, you know, we don't think that this is a method that's specific to this turtle, right? And we can use it for, 
if you want to do surveys for spiny soft shell, if you want to do surveys for map turtles, you want to do it for, you know, sliders, whatever, I think it works. But, um, you know, so we, we of course counted all those turtle species. We weren't ignoring the, the other ones, the non focal ones, but, um, right. but yeah, no, with, with the other two, with the two hard shelled turtles, um, it was pretty easy to discern them when you had a nice photo or even a pretty decent photo. Um, enough diagnostic characters are visible usually from that dorsal aerial viewpoint, kind of this top down view um, that you could discern the two species. So for example, there usually was a, a fair amount of, well, on trachomy scripta, you get a fair amount of yellow uh, lines, kind of bars on the, on the carapace on, especially on a prettier younger individual. Um, of course that can fade and they can be really dark um, in an old turtle. And then, you know, you often can see the red on the neck. Um, and of course, yeah. for Gruzugi that are basking, you, you can get um, quite a bit of red and it kind of comes across as a little bit reddish orange sometimes on the feet and the webbing, which are often visible when they're out basking um, and some lines on the, the head and neck. And, you know, just looking at a few, it's pretty quick, pretty easy to start to discern differences and, and pick that out. Now, we did, of course, run into situations where we couldn't ID that turtle from the drone photograph. And that was typically when you had things like some sort of um, obstruction. So it could be vegetation kind of slightly over the turtle or the turtles in the shade. And so it's dark and you, you know can't see the color or patterning um, sometimes on really windy days. So even though the, the drone has something called a gimbal attached to it, which is what the camera is attached to as a stabilizing element there, um, you know, on really windy days or not, we weren't flying on really windy days on windier days. I'll say that um, sometimes you'd get a little bit of movement still in the camera and the, the, the photos would come off just a little bit blurry and you, you know, you couldn't, couldn't really use the, well, it just depends. You couldn't always ID as much as you'd like to. Um, and so that did happen from time to time, but you know, so occasionally we would have some photos that, you know, weren't the best or the clearest, but, but that was still overall the, you know, minority of the photos that we were taking. So. Okay. Well, I, I can hear my uh, listeners out there right now. I can hear the, the question in their brains and, and that is how fly, how high above the turtles can you fly or how low can you go? Let's so to speak. What's, <laughs> what's the, uh, I mean, it depends on, you have a camera, so it depends on the limitations of the camera. And then uh, the ability to fly low enough to get a decent photo to identify. So what kind of altitude are we talking here? Yeah, so most of our drone flights were, were flown at 30 meters above the ground. And, you know, we did some testing where we, where we flew higher um, and, you know, a little bit lower. And, yeah, you're right, there's a trade-off. So the higher you go, the less resolution, right, the smaller the turtles appear on your photograph, but you have a, a bigger footprint. Right. So you're taking a, your the photograph is is a larger area, um, which is nice because you can survey more area potentially. Uh, but, you know, it, it is a trade off there that you would lose some resolution of the turtles themselves. And so, you know, as long as you can identify those turtles confidently or or, or still get good enough pictures with a higher you know, drone flight, um, then go for it. You know, but uh, but we found 30 meters was kind of this sweet spot where it gave us a good enough footprint and kind of the area we were able to um, survey, you know, with one set of batteries on one drone flight. And, um, and it didn't really seem to disturb the turtles all that much. So we, we did a lot of test flights, just, you know, kind of looking at turtle behavior at these different uh, altitudes. And 
you know, we did get a little bit of disturbance at 30, but, you know, often what we were seeing is that you'd have basking turtles, say, out in the river, um, and you'd fly over. And sometimes, you know, a, a, a handful of turtles, 20, 30% of the turtles might slide in, um, but they didn't dive. So the turtles would, you know, slide into the water from the rocks they've been basking on, but they'd stay at the surface of the water. So they're, you know, they feel, of course, somewhat safe in the water, um, but, you know, they're not hitting the water and just like disappearing, right? Which we did, wouldn't want, right? We don't want to have a method, a survey method that's really altering the behavior of these turtles, because if it's making them hide or leave, then it's like we're missing them or we're not counting them. But for the most part, turtles would slide into the water, but they'd be, you know, they'd swim or be floating right at the surface of the water. Um, and our drone, you know, would still capture that on the, on a, on our photographs. And, you know, we could still ID, you know, the turtles don't have to be basking in order for us to count them. So we could still get identifiable photos of turtles from indiv uh, swimming individuals quite often. And that was a pretty commonplace thing. So they weren't always basking. So they could be swimming in our, as long as they're in our, you know, area of our drone flight, we could still get, uh, capture them and, and, uh, count them. So. So something you said a little while ago, uh, was, was interesting. I picked up on it, uh, in the paper and just the fact that I, I assumed maybe like Mike and maybe like some of the viewers that the trade-off would be, yeah, being able to take a good enough photo of the turtle but really you say the real trade-off is the total flight area that you can do and that that didn't really cross my mind that yeah the higher you go the more area you can cover and thus essentially the more data on of of the river you can gather and and that was a a pretty cool um just a cool factor that i that i hadn't considered but so you bring up that you can catch turtles or photograph turtles, I should say, when they're just basking on top of the water. Um, and I was recently talking with my boss about the potential of using these, uh, using drones to survey for turtles in, in the Southeast where the water is a lot more turbid and filled with tannins. And essentially, if they're not in the top foot of water, you're, you're not going to see them. Um, what do you think about that? Are there ways that you can get around that or, um, or were you just very lucky that the Rio Grande is, is more clear than some of the, the Southeastern rivers? Yeah. Well, it, th there's parts of the Rio Grande that are, that are much clearer. Um, but there's also quite a few areas that are heavily turbid. And so it just depends on sure. a lot of just what section you're in, what areas, uh, has it rained recently? Are you below, uh, or just downstream of the dams, uh, has there been a recent dam release, you know, or water from these reservoirs along the dam? Um, but yeah, no, we, we realized that, you know, this situation that we're working in. So one thing, you know, of course we, we selected sites, we were surveying sites that were biased towards historic records or where this Rio Grande Cooter would be, right? That was kind of, again, the, the, the focus of this work. And this turtle right. is, is, uh, pretty widely, uh, kind of associated with, well, it's found a lot of different habitats, but there's, it's pretty abundant and a lot of spring habitats that are also kind of throughout this region. And of course, springs, you know, pretty clear habitat, you know, you have that, at, you know, that advantage of, of being able to see deeper into the water column. And so, you know, certainly we had sites that we would, we would fly the drone at and, and be able to see these turtles that were clearly at the bottom of the water, 
um, you know, that we would have missed from, you know, doing surveys from the shoreline or visual surveys from a shore or access point, you know, just because we simply, you know, from that, from that lat, uh, kind of that lateral viewpoint, that side, you know, we, we can't see into the water column. And so we would have missed those. And, and with the drone, you know, the water was clear enough, we can see through and ID these turtles. And in that paper, I think we even have yeah. kind of a few example photos of, of that. And it, it's great in that scenario, right? But we know that the, not every river and not every aquatic habitat has clear water. And so places like the Southeast sure. where there are tannins and a lot more, uh, you know, even, even uh, canopy cover and things like that certainly presents uh, new challenges. I do think, you know, one of the reasons we sort of tried to include uh, basking in this, in the title, right? So a lot of, of our sort of heavily aquatic turtle species. So things like your um, snapping turtles, both species of snapping turtle, kynosternids and sternotherus, right? Musk turtles, mud turtles, um, you know, these are pretty benthic. I mean, they, they do bask. I mean, there are plenty of examples of these turtles coming up and basking, you know, but usually not to the same extent that, you know, a lot of your sliders and, and cooters and map turtles and things like that do. And so, you know, little things like a, a little musk turtle, you know, traipsing along the bottom of a wetland or a pond or, you know, something like that is probably going to get missed because, well, they're not in the Rio Grande. They're not in those habitats, but you know, there's probably a lot more cover. They're in there in the muck and all this organic material, and it's going to be hard to census those. So, so yeah, certainly there are limitations. Still, like, yeah. Maybe in some clear water springs in Florida or, or other places, like this could be potentially cool. I remember y'all even mentioned seeing turtles eating and, uh, and courting, uh, in the water, like from above the water. I thought that was pretty impressive as well. Yeah, we saw them, we, you know, again, we just don't think the drone was all that disturbing to these turtles and that's good. I mean, we don't want it to be, um, you know, we had plenty of instances where we flew over ducks and waterfowl and, and, um, wading birds and, you know, they didn't really seem to care. Um, you know, at one point we flew over an osprey that had caught a fish and was eating its fish on a, on a log, you know, didn't seem to be bothered by our drone. And, um, and yeah, I think that's just sort of as a, is a pretty cool aspect that, that they're not as much of a disturbance uh, to this wildlife, which is good. Definitely. Well, I'm wondering about, um, you're talking about the, the turtles that were basking. Some of them would slide into the water. Did they detect the drone by sight or by sound? Well, that's a good question. Um, ultimately, I don't know what triggered that behavior or response from them. My guess, I mean, it is a loud drone. I mean, it is a, so this, we flew, we flew a six rotor drone that was quite bulky and large. It had two cameras on it and one was taking digital photos for, you know, turtle IDs. Another one was taking uh, multi-spectral images for sort of habitat work. Um, I suspect moving forward, and of course, drone technology is advancing really rapidly. You know, drones are much smaller now and, um, or you could get away with a much smaller drone um, if you wanted to redo this work and just have a yes. digital camera on there. Um, and so then, you know, you'd be dealing with maybe something that's quieter and not and, and as a smaller, you know, shadow in the sky, I guess, if you will. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know. It's hard for me to know. It, it, it does sound like a swarm of bees when it's taking off and landing. So, I mean, it is pretty loud. Okay. Uh, and, um, well, the the, pa the paper says the drone, I think, is is close to ten kilograms, which is 
pretty heavy for a drone. So I imagine there's a lot of noise to keep that thing in the air. It is a lot. Yeah. And, you know, of course, that extra weight means, you know, decreased battery life. And, and you know, so, yeah, if we did it again, you know, we, we were trying to minimize the flights and kind of have multiple cameras on one on the drone at, you know, one time. And I think that was good, but if you're just censusing turtles, if you're just wanting to count and, and survey for these turtles along the river or aquatic habitats, you can get away with just a camera. Um, and I guess a lot of them have built-in cameras. We used a separate camera, of course, that was attached and had a gimbal, which is a stabilizing element. And um, and so then you can you can get away with a lot smaller things. I mean, I'm sure drone technologies, this is archaic you know, nowadays, I mean, we did this in 2019. I'm sure they are, there's much nicer, fancier drones in 2022. So yeah. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the camera that you put on. Was it, um, I mean, one, did you choose the camera in particular for this work or was it just one that someone had lying around? And if someone wants to replicate this, would you recommend that they go for like the highest resolution camera. So like a full frame or, or high resolution, large field of view camera, or is actually the lens more important? What, what um, considerations did you, uh, did you take in to uh, regarding the camera? Sure. Un unfortunately, this is not going to be a great, a very satisfying answer, but the, the camera was what, you know, we had, the, the the PIs of this project, Richard Klein and, and Faiz Rahman, were, you know, had already kind of settled in on this camera um, prior to sort of really getting the data collection going. Of course, you know, still deciding the camera and the lens. And of course, we put in a, a, a UV filter lens cat, you know, to help with glare over the water. I mean, that was a, a, obviously a big issue um, for like all our flights. But, um, but yeah, no, I think I think resolution is probably the biggest. Um, I, I think it would be a strong consideration in sort of choosing a the camera itself. Simply, right, you know, more megapixels, you get better resolution of those of those turtles, and and especially if you're in habitats where you need some really good photos of that turtle to really differentiate it, maybe amongst a couple closely related or very similar looking species. And so, again, you know, uh, I, I would think you know having that higher resolution, higher megapixel camera. Would, would go a long way with sort of improving the, the quality of work, right? Because just knowing there's turtles there, which is, you know, part of the battle, but that's not that helpful, right? If we can't ID that to a species, it's like, yeah, that's a turtle, but I don't know if it's, you know, species A, B, or C. Um, it doesn't really get us anywhere right. with sort of management effort or management goals and, and, um, and sort of understanding and learning about these species, so. Cool. Good to know. If I look at the paper too, you... You ended up with, I think, uh, I wrote these numbers down, 640 turtle detections with a 82% uh, identification rate. So you were able to identify 82% of those. So that's That sounds pretty good. Yeah, it was. we were quite happy with it, um, especially compared to... So, I mean, this paper, you know, the real impetus of it was simply to present a lot of our methodology. Uh, we have additional data, of course, which we're working on getting published that that actually compares this, you know, kind of gets into the meat and potatoes of comparing the data from our drone to our visual surveys, to our trapping. And so, right, when you trap an animal, you have 100% identification, right? You have that animal in your hands. <laughs> um, you can ID it very well, very easily. Um, 
but really the drone compared to visual surveys, we had a lot lower identification percentage with visual surveys. And that's just because I think, well, there were a lot of issues. And so, right, things like glare and angle, you know, you just can't see into the water column as well as you could from an aerial viewpoint from the drone. So the drone clearly outperformed visual surveys and sort of getting us good data on, you know, turtle abundance and, and species detections and things like that. So, yeah. Well, I can imagine too that with visual surveys, I mean, other than, you know, obviously you can be looking into the sun, maybe the wrong <laughs> time of day, and but that's, that, that's your only vantage point for that particular mm-hmm. bunch of basking sites. Or you may not be able to even access uh, a basking site um, because, you know, it's not like the bank is, you know, you can just stroll up and down the banks of the Rio Grande. There's lots yeah. of places that are hard to get into. And there's, it's, it's not a, a cut and dried thing to, to be able to, to do the visual thing. Especially which, in Texas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, correct. Yeah. The, the advantages, the vantage points for, for visual surveys were often constrained um, but by vegetation. And so you just can't see, and there were cut banks. And so you couldn't, you know, really see often just, we can't see around the bend of the river, but you had a lim- more limp, certainly a more limited field of view than you could have with a, with a drone. And I'm thinking about, you know, when I saw you down to this fall and we went down to a spot right along the river where there were some basking turtles, uh, but they were basking about, oh, maybe a hundred feet down stream from us, but we couldn't get closer to them because yeah. there was, you know, uh, I think it was private property, but I think it was just really thick uh, brush. And you, it was just, it would have been tough though. And by the time you made a racket getting up there, you would have, all the turtles would have been in the water. So, sure. you know, I had to settle for looking at them through binoculars and, and, uh, you know, getting, getting a look at them. But, uh, so there's all these various challenges to traditional methods that, that also, I can't even imagine trapping turtles in, in the Rio Grande uh, is got to be tough. It's, it's not like trapping in a lake or a slow river or something, or a river with bend or an oxbow or something or a swamp. It's, it's gotta be a much bigger challenge to even trap turtles. I mean, granted you get a hundred percent ID, but how many turtles are you actually getting when you're trapping? Yeah, not, not as many as you would think. Um, and you know, a lot of this work, you know, or this concern about the species decline was, you know, simply attributed to the fact that they're tough to trap. And so is it, are these animals just kind of by, by nature trap shy and, and difficult to get into a trap and then to count and, and detect them or, or are they declining? And so that's a big, was a big concern. And, you know, we still had trouble, you know, getting some numbers into the traps. We, we did have trapping success overall. Um, but, you know, we had certain areas where we saw a lot of turtles. And so, you know, we had a couple of really high abundant air, abundance areas where I think the drones really outperform all the other methods and how many they can sense is of course that wasn't the norm for all of our drone flights. So it kind of doesn't get picked up in some of this signal from the, our statistical analyses, but like, you know, I think one of our sites, you know, we, we, we just below the Lake Amistad or um, yeah, the Amistad dam and outside of Del Rio, I mean, we saw probably 80 or so turtles with a drone flight. You know, I think we trapped two or three turtles, you know what I mean? So like these big discrepancies with what you see and what you can trap in that time. And so, you know, 
what's happening i don't know and of course you know and then of course trapping below a dam is a challenge in and of itself because there's variable water releases and so you have fluctuations very drastic fluctuations we realized that after our first trapping events in those areas that this is not going to work because every 12 hours they they at the, at that time and given their water release rates or whatever but they would they would alternate between water releases from the Mexico or the US side. And so the, the traps would be exposed for a period of time until the water levels came back up. And, and, um, and so we had to start changing. We, we couldn't trap normally as, as we had been. And um, so we really had to have these floating traps that, that proved somewhat successful, but you know, we didn't know that at first. So there's certainly challenges with it. I mean, a lot of our, when, when it came to trapping, of course, you know, the, the access we had to the Rio because so much of the land in Texas is private, you know, we were really accessing the Rio at these sort of public water access points. And the Rio Grande isn't really a heavily boated, you know, not a lot of people put in boats. So there's not a lot of great boat launches and things like that. But, you know, people would visit the Rio Grande banks and fish and, and whatnot. And, um, and so we had, you know, so we, we were trapping in areas that were sometimes sort of high, high use by people. And so they would occasionally muck with the traps or we'd have traps stolen and things like that. So, so that was sometimes difficult to, um, kind of disentangle from one another, but you know, it's a peril. It's a challenge with trapping. That, but that really speaks to the utility of drones. Um, and sometimes even, and I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the legality issues, especially on, on private land. I don't know how river access works in Texas, whether like, you can float a river or whether someone can own the river. I'm sure the Rio Grande is like unique in and of itself because it's a international border as well. But could you just go to the border of someone's public land and where, sorry, the border of public and private land, launch the drone from public land and then go into the, the, the private side of the river, essentially, where one bank, one side of the bank is Mexico. The other side is a private landowner in Texas and then survey and then come back and land your drone in, in public land again, or alternatively, like get a boat and go up the river where it's completely surrounded by private land, launch your drone from the boat survey and then bring the drone back to the boat. Like is, is that possible? Is that legal? Um, how, how does that work? Sure. Yeah. So we had to figure out all that. This is all new, new, uh, new information for us too. I mean, none of us had really done this type of work prior to, to doing it. And so we of course had to look into all this. Um, there were kind of multiple parts to your question. So there's a lot of permitting that happens with drones. Drones are still new. Um, a lot of agencies and, and sort of are still figuring out how to deal with drones and kind of what they, what, they allow and what's what's permittable and what's not but yeah so we cannot fly a drone over private land without private landowner permission and you know and so that would what we you know we we secured that a lot of times of course when we were flying over private lands and so does that include the river like the river is public because it's a navigable waterway okay but you know we we would, and, but so the Rio Grande, for example, it is an international boundary, as you said. So we could not fly over the, and so I think the actual, the 
boundary line is the midline of the river. And so really, if you can imagine sort of just a river, we didn't fly over really half of the river that was on the Mexican side. So we didn't, we, you know, our, our drone flights, we would program, you know, we could program these flights and it would just do a series of transects back and forth. And so, yeah, when we, we were flying along the Rio Grande, you know, we, we, you know, had, had it stop at the midline and then it would turn around and go back towards the U.S. shore and it would get a little bit of shoreline and then curve around and go back to the midline of the river and then back to the U.S. side. So it went back and forth um, really between the midline of the river and the U.S. side. And yeah, so you couldn't fly over private land without landowner permission. And so but we would secure that when we could. Um, there's an interface right now for Texas Parks and Wildlife. So we have to have a so we have to have an FAA aviators license so our drone pilots have to have a license and so that's like the first step <laughs> and you know because we were flying on uh international boundary and and we were flying close to these dams which are of course are secure areas for you know threats and and you know infrastructure so we had to work with ibwc which is international boundary water commission which is a multi-agency so it's a u.s and mexican uh an agency and dealing with regu- you know, regulating water releases and water rights. And so we had to coordinate with them. Of course, we had to coordinate with Border Patrol. Um, the Texas Department of Public Safety also has a presence along the, the border. So we had to coordinate with them. Um, often, you know, we would call cool. and, and leave these messages or, or talk to these people uh, in offices at, at various re- you know, areas along the Rio Grande. Um, let them know what we're doing, remind them who we were. <laughs> they never seem to remember. Um, and, you know, they would hopefully then tell their agents in the field that we found that was rarely the case, but, you know, we never had an issue running into like, port- you know, they often ask us what we're doing, um, you know, and and they would say, oh yeah, I see lots of turtles here. I don't see many or, you know, kind of, I see a bunch of this next, you know, launch up the river or down, you know, and, um, and so there was always fun to interact with them, but, but yeah, they would always somehow never get the, the message from their higher ups sort of never made it out to the, the, the agents in the field. So, so there's a big payoff, but a, yeah, but there's a lot of red tape. This scenario. Yeah. This situation like was about as complicated as you could get flying on an international boundary. Uh, you know, is a rough first drone flight to do, right. You know, those are so, but we really worked out all the kinks for that. And hopefully that means everything else we do with drones is a lot easier um, because we're probably not going to be doing stuff along the Rio Grande. Well, even if you only fly to the center of the river, which varies, <laughs> it changes, totally bizarre, but you fly to this, you can still, your your optics dictate that you can see the whole river still. So you, it's not like you're only surveying half the river, right? That's, you, that's you, correct. You know, yeah, no, we, it just depends on, you know, the width of the river at that point, but no, you're right. Yeah. So the, because you have, you know, you're, you're flying 30 meters up. Um, I'm not sure what the actual dimensions of our picture of our, um, a photograph was, I don't recall off the top of my head, but yeah, I know you could potentially sometimes see, yeah, you see the, the, the Mexican half of the river, you know I mean? Or even the, the Mexican shoreline a little bit, but, but yeah, the drone could not go over there, um, you know, fly over onto the, the, the Mexican side of the Rio Grande and even onto private property on the Mexican side. So. Oh man. It, so it, and you would, you would face, so, you know, getting permission to go over across the border, even if you got that, you still have to deal with public lands and private lands over there too, right? That's, yeah. that's kind of variable there too. 
Yeah, for sure. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Wow. So there's there's a lot to uh, uh you had to guys you guys had to put a lot of things together to make this this project work. We did, yeah, for sure. And it and it but I mean I think it worked out in the end and um we were able to get some really good data and sort of really help hopefully bring this method, this drone, you know, drone-based methods hopefully into future turtle surveys. I mean, we've we've already been hearing from from folks who are um you know, also designing their own turtle or turtle surveys via drone. Um, and so that's great. You know I mean? They sort of helped, help introduce them to this area. And, and I hope I haven't heard the results yet, but hopefully it is a, a fruitful endeavor for them. And they're able to get detections that hopefully maybe are better than other methods they've been trying to do for, for turtles. I think they're doing this right now for chicken turtles. Um, and uh, I think there's hopefully some people starting Ooh. some stuff with terrapins uh, along the coastline. So Oh, no, I could see that. Uh, I'm thinking back, you know, I went to the Jersey Shore, the Jersey Shore. I went there a couple <laughs> years ago uh, during uh, in June and there were those diamondback terrapins everywhere. And yep. and um, they spent a lot of time swimming at the surface. So that would have been that would be an excellent application. Yeah, probably not too many other turtles to really confuse them with. <laughs> so they'd be an easy one, I think, to, to ID no. and, and pick out and probably not too many other things in those brackish, brackish waters. Yeah, as long as it's not too choppy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true, too. If the weather's, weather would have to cooperate. But maybe you could outfit your drone so that it looks like a turtle up in, in the sky, and then uh, people would know it was the turtles, turtle survey people. Uh, just a thought. Uh, I want to go back to something else in the, from the paper, and that is that there were... It, it, it took over 84,000 photos. Uh, and I'm just thinking of the poor grad students who probably assisted with this project and figuring out which, which photos had turtles in them and which didn't. This sounds like a prime opportunity to bring in uh, AI and yeah. use AI to identify photos that have a first, uh, first pass a turtle in them, second pass, maybe try to identify it. How about that? So Amy... The first author on this paper, Amy Vogelin, uh, she she was a master's student in the in the lab, and this was part of her thesis work um, was working with this turtle, and she was a rock star. And I cannot praise her enough. Um, sorry, her 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 work ethic and and commitment to this project. I mean, yeah, eighty four thousand photos. We manually sorted. I say we. It was Amy. Amy did all of this. And so she, she had to look through these photos. And so, you know, again, at 30 meters, it's a lot of area, you know, that you had to sort of scan through and really look to find these turtles. Um, and so she did that. Yeah. I mean, it was, I don't even know how long it took her. I mean, just saying 84,000 photographs, it just wow. sounds crazy, but right. The time to sort 84,000 photos. I mean, she, she would pretty much start, we'd be in the field and we, you know, of course flew at multiple uh, sites kind of in a, 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 re, a sampling trip. And so like we'd, we'd get a drone flight or two done in that day. And then we'd go back to the hotels and she'd pretty much start sorting right then and there. I mean, she, she did not let this accumulate because I can't imagine seeing a file folder of 84,000 photos. So, I mean, she tried to stay on top of it, but you know, and she did a good job of it. And, um, but yeah, we, we had to do it all manually. I think, you know, a lot of AI is a future direction for a lot of camera trapping. 
you know, uh, you know, your game cameras and things like that on, on terrestrial landscapes, a lot of people are going to to AI to help sort these massive numbers of pictures and this massive number of amount of data that's being collected for these studies. And um, I think certainly they could be used here. We did not, um, but we had a pretty short timeline. Uh, really in earnest, we we started data collection in maybe March 2019, and our last survey sites or our last survey um, trips were, I think, in October 2019. And we had to have everything wrapped up and analyzed by January 2020. And so it was a very short time. So we, so we, you know, maybe I'm over, you know, maybe it's very simple to have an AI, AI sort photos, but, you know, we just didn't have that. We didn't feel like we had the time to look into that as a, as a potential way to (laughs) sort through these photos. Well, if you guys, if you guys do this again, uh, talk to our buddy, Don Becker. You know, Don Don wrote uh, the the AI identification bot called Fitch, um, which is pretty good with North American species. It identifies <laughs> North American species um, in the 90 percent plus range. So he might uh, be able to help you guys out next time, and maybe <laughs> Amy can do something more productive. Maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe wow, he can going through eighty four thousand photos. Yeah, for sure. So, but. Uh, just a just a thought because uh, I've I've seen Don's did a lot of work on uh, on that uh, herp recognition stuff and he's uh, he did a pretty good job with with Fitch by the way so yeah I do wonder how they um, because you know often these were you know we zoomed in, you know they, we had enough the megapixel I'm not sure what the camera was but however many megapixels I mean we were able to zoom in on these photos and you know see the turtles and ID them but but you know it's a lot of non turtle space you know what I mean so just submitting the raw photos. To, right. you know, AI might, might have trouble picking them up because they are kind of small. Um, maybe it can do it. I have no idea, but so you had to scan all those by, and then of course, right. So then just, just seeing a turtle and IDing the turtles in a picture was, was only part of it because she had to make sure that we're not taking, well, we were taking photos of the same turtles, right. In succession. Cause if they were like, you know, you got, there was overlap between the photos. And so, you know, you, you have a basket well, you had structure. An, an, an app that would stitch. Yeah. An app would, that would stitch these together, right? Well, no. So we, we, we tried that. We thought we were going to do that with, we were going to stitch our images together okay. and make this one um, stitched image that we could say, okay, here's our, here's our 1.2 hectare survey segment of the river. And then we have that. And then we just go through it and say, oh, there's a turtle, there's, you know, and count the turtles that we see. Um, uh-huh. The algorithms that stitch these photos together. So we had trouble over open water because there weren't landmarks that helped oh. um, combine right. or, or, or uh, you know, allow these photos to be stitched together. And the water would move too. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm not, maybe yeah. I'm saying the technical words here correctly, but, but there would be areas where it would blend and kind of try to fill and, uh, and then it would cause these distortions sometimes. And it'd be like, well, I don't, if there was a turtle there, it's all been sort of smoothed out and kind of, kind of looked somewhat melty, you know what I mean? Just like not, not a great image there. And, and I, and again, I think this is an aspect of it trying to, to, to blend from one picture to another and, you know, finding the landmarks and stuff like that. So we, we realized pretty quickly on that. We weren't able to stitch. We weren't going to be able to stitch these images together. And instead we would, you know, pull out all the photos that had a picture of a turtle. We, would have GPS location stamped on each of these drone images. So they were geotagged 
And and so it would allow us to sort of, okay, this was the GPS point for this, the sort of centroid of this photo. Um, and then we would plot those on like Google Earth or something, for example, and you could kind of see, right, if you had, if you took multiple images of the same turtle, right, they often appear in a line because the drones were flying in a, you know, linear transect feature. And, you know, then she would just look at the turtles and say like, oh yeah, like this is the same log, you know, that it, it kind of got on one edge of one transect and now it's on the edge of this other transect, but that's the same log. Those are the same three turtles basking on it, you know, so, so she would toss out the duplicates, wow. right. You know, so she had to really make sure okay. and do this, you know, QA, QC and make sure that we're not artificially inflating the numbers of turtles because we're double counting these individuals. And it was a little bit more challenging over open water, but you know, you could, you know, sometimes it would be males courting females, you know, just there were things you could pick out and say like, Oh, that's the same turtle. Cause it's, they're two adjacent photos, you know, they were taken back to back. It's a photo of the same turtle though. So. Okay. So things that a human brain is really good at, but maybe <laughs> AI and other methods, not so much. Yeah, possibly. Okay. And you, you did mention you, you're doing transect. So, you know, you, uh, there's a picture in the paper sort of the, shows the the transects over the water It basically looks like somebody mowing their lawn, you know, going back and forth and back and forth, always in the same direction, um, uh, across the river. So that, uh, it's not just, a, you're not just flying down the middle of the river, you know, like apocalypse now or something where you're, uh, you know, and then flying over turtles, you, you've got, uh, a transect and you have to cover with, with, with the drone, you have to cover the area you're interested in in some sort of logical way. Yeah. And it was, you know, we of course could, you know, tweak a lot of these things like overlap or, our, you know, kind of the transect width, you know, how wide those, the transect lines were from one another, but, you know, we didn't fly. I mean, so we would, you know, you, you, you have these apps, you know, we would fly, you know, have this app on an iPad and, and, and preload and, and kind of pre-plan these flights back in the lab, kind of knowing what trips were going to go on, you know, that weekend or the next week. And then we'd get out there and then we'd upload these flights to the drone and it would take off and do it all itself. So we didn't do anything with, you know, we didn't have to fly these, you know, transect lines. We would, when the drone was landing, it would come back to where we launched from. We'd occasionally slow the descent and kind of just even, you know, slow the descent uh, of the drone even further because we didn't want it to crash because they're quite expensive. Um, and, uh, but you know, that was it. I mean, that was really it. So we weren't, you know, you're not very active in the drone flights. You really just say, you know, you press go or upload flight and then you, you let it go. And so, um, so that's nice. I mean, of course you, some people have interfaces where depending on their equipment on cameras, you know, they can see stuff from their, you know, they can see the, the pictures right on their iPad or, you know, the tablet that, you know, kind of a live feed, but you know, we didn't do any of that. Of course it was just taking photos and then we would, you know, turn off the camera and uh, unload those photos and go to the next site and do it all again. Okay. So the first couple times you did this, it was a matter of feeling out the right height and getting the right program put in for all, all of this and sort of coming up with the, the, the parameters that work best for, for your river surveys. Exactly. Yeah. We, you know, did a lot of flights. So we have um, these sort of habitats down here in South Texas called Rasakas, uh, which are, they're not quite an oxbow lake, but they're old river channels of the Rio Grande. Um, but, you know, they're still water habitats. We have one right on campus, the UTRGV campus in Brownsville. And so it was very easy just to take the drone out and do some flights over the, the Rasaka. Lots of, there's no Rio Grande cooters in the river or in that Rasaka. 
uh, but there's lots of rendered sliders and, sp and spiny soft shells. So we'd fly over and, and sort of adjust the settings and be like, okay, yeah, let's just do a bunch of, bunch of different flights, tweak a bunch of different settings, and then go back to lab, look at those photos, figure out, okay, those look good. Those look terrible. You know, okay, this has some promise and, and kind of adjust the settings and kind of figure out what we're doing. And, and because those turtles were, were kind of on a, college campus, you know, we wondered if some of their behaviors were quite as, um, they were maybe more accustomed to people and maybe less shy or, or, or um, we were less likely to startle them with the drone. So we did do it out in the field as well. So the, the place, Mike, you mentioned where we went to the Rio Grande in November, um, we flew over there as sort of, that was, that's one of the lowest spots in the Rio Grande that you can, you can get good numbers of Rio Grande cooters. And, um, and so we obviously wanted to see how they behaved with the drone flight. So we would do, we would take some trips out there and, and do those test flights and, and, you know, launch it, bring it back, you know, fly it for a minute or two, not the full thing, but just, you know, get a, get some pictures of these turtles, see how they responded to the drone overhead at this altitude, bring it back, change the settings, do it again. So, and run through a bunch of batteries that way. So. Wow. This is a lot of work, but then again, you think about trapping hours and things like that. It's, it's, you know, not much more or if, if any more really just different work. It's different. Yeah. I mean, trapping, of course, you know, you have multiple visits back and, and, you know, we were trapping for, for 48 hours. So we had to, you know, we had to go to a site, set it up. We checked it at 24 hours, right? We didn't want to make sure traps were still standing and, and there was bait and, and process and release any turtles that we had captured then. You know, another 24 hours later, we, we went back again, processed and marked and, and counted turtles, and then, of course, took down the trap. So, I mean, it, it, you know, of course, we had to stay in an area for, you know, I mean, two, I guess, three trips to do trapping for what we did. Um, I mean, I guess you could only trap for 24 hours. That's fine, too, but it's just a smaller window. But, yeah, a drone flight, I mean, we would have, you know, a thousand plus photos from a drone flight in in 15 minutes, you know, which is a lot of work to process it still, but you know, you can go to a site, essentially have your data in hand, your raw data in hand within, you know, 30 minutes essentially. And then you can move on to the next site, do it again, as long as you have enough batteries to, to sort of keep flying your drone. So you can, you can hit a bunch of sites really easily, really quickly. And of course it takes some time to generate whether or not you find Sudamese Gorzugi, of course, processing those photos, but but you could accumulate a lot of data really quickly with a drone. Okay. You mentioned too, um, uh, you know, you have to drive, you know, across, that's a big area there. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like driving across New England in terms of scale. So there's a lot of driving involved and a lot of, uh, it, it's not just, uh, I don't want to, it's local, but it's not local in the way people think because Texas is so friggin' big. <laughs> Uh, even South Texas is big, so that's a lot of ground to cover down there. We did, but yeah. did you? Um, what did you learn about Sudemi's Gorzugi down there, the Rio Grande Cooter? What did you learn about it in terms that was of population? Be my final question as well. How are they doing? <laughs> yeah. So, so I mean, sorry, I stole your question, Alex. No, it's all right. So, you know, of course, you know, we a lot of this work was conservation driven, right? I mean, we we wanted to know how they were doing. We wanted to know if they're still there, you know, are, are they, are they still at these spots? We, you know, knew they were historically or had their, you know, historic, historical data or old museum records and things like that. 
And so it was very heartening to know, to do this work and, and to actually find good numbers of these turtles. Now, of course, we, you know, the drone was part of the story, right? Again, you know, and that's the kind of focus of this paper and, and in our kind of conversation today. But, but through all the methods, you know, we, we know that, you know, we're, we're sort of biasing our detection to adult turtles. So we're not really catching, mm. you know, drones probably aren't going to do best that great for hatchling turtles. I mean, they're tiny, you know, it'd be these tiny dots um, in these images. Um, and same thing with trapping, right? You know, you know, big hoop net traps that are, that are three feet wide really aren't going to capture hatchling turtles. And so, so, but, but from, from the date, you know, from our adult data, you know, a data, a data on these adult turtles, like we're, we're seeing these turtles where we thought they should be. And that's very good, right? You know, it's no, you know, we're, we're, we're hope, uh, hoping that recruitment is, is, is happening, that they are able to produce, and we would get some younger individuals in our traps and stuffs, but you know, that aren't old, old individuals. But so, I mean, obviously recruitment is occurring, but that's one thing we still don't know great is, is sort of what their recruitment's like for these turtles. But, but as far as adults and populations of them, they seem to be present where we thought they should be. And we even found them at additional places along the Rio Grande. And so, um, uh, and so that's great. Um, and so that's really good to know, right. Sort of from this conservation, uh, angle is that these populations are still present on the landscape. Now I'm sure they are declining. Just everything's declining because we are losing habitat, but, but yeah, so that's a, we were quite happy to still find good numbers of adult turtles on the landscape. And so, and that was very promising, of course. And then the data that we helped generate from, you know, again, a good chunk of it is from our drone surveys was fed. We, we handed it off to U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And, you know, because Pseudomys gorzugi is a candidate species for federal listing, they, you know, have used that data to sort of do their species status assessment. And just a few weeks ago, I think maybe mid-March, they came back and they ultimately decided not to list Pseudomys gorzugi under the Endangered Species Act. And not that it's solely because of our data, but, you know, our data did help, you know, went into that. We had, you know, of course, the big impetus to collect this data was to help, you know, generate new data and, and, and recent data on this turtle. Um, and so... I think that's probably the right decision. I mean, I think about other taxa that I work with that are declining, that we can't find nearly as as, as abundantly. Um, things like the black spotted newt, um, which is a candidate species as well. But, you know, and again, you just can't list everything, right? So even though we'd like to list it and, and protect it and, and whatnot, and, and of course, I think it still has afforded some protection at state levels, which is great. Um, you know, we, they can't list everything and obviously money and, and resources are limited. So if, you know, these turtles are not as threatened as maybe they, we thought they might be, then maybe we can put that money towards other taxa that are more imperiled and maybe we can sort of turn things around for them um, and save more species that way. But, but yeah, so, I mean, I think that sort of the, the take home thing was that, you know, these turtles seem to still be present on the landscape. There's a lot, we still don't know about them. They're uh, kind of an under or miss an understudied species, and again, they're relatively recently described in sort of the you know amongst all our turtles, and we don't know a lot of specific information about this species compared to what maybe other pseudomies, other cooters, which 
you know, they, they split off from. So we, you know, we assume they're similar in some aspects, but we don't know a lot about that specifically for the Rio Grande Cooter. We, we think about it with, with the Texas Cooter or the River Cooter, right? These, these species that, um, you know, those are the ones that have been studied a bit more in depth. And so we think they're probably similar, but we don't know, we don't have a lot of specific data for, for the species. So, yeah. Cool. Gotcha. It's like good news and bad news, I guess. It's like, <laughs> I, I think a lot of, yeah, that it's good to know that a species is still doing, seems to be doing okay, present in the places where we we thought it was, where it had been found before. Like, that's actually kind of a heartening message as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, everything's declining, I think, right? You know, and, and you know, it's, it's rare, there's, you know, obviously your invasive species and some of these things do really well in, in altered landscapes and human environments and all that. But, but, you know, so I certainly think they probably have suffered some declines and especially in, but I think the bigger declines maybe are due to large scale habitat modification on the Rio Grande, you know, and that's really in the form of these dams and these reservoirs that are formed above these dams. Um, sure. You know, right. You have a, you have riverine turtles and that are now in these giant reservoirs and it's, you know, that's not the habitat that these, these animals sort of have evolved to be in. And, and so, you know, I think you, know, you lose habitat, you inundate habitat with when you when you create a dam, and and so a lot of maybe nesting habitat is is a lot more reduced because these sort of river plain or floodplain like uh, cottonwood riparian forest and and sort of soils that accumulate during floods, you know, like those are now all inundated because there's a dam and that, that's all a reservoir now, and so the the areas that are out of the water exposed are rockier kind of canyon tops and things like that so so i think there's some things like that going on of course and and um of course water use and hydrology of course factor into this but but overall sort of the turtles were where we thought they should be in texas of course right this this study was only in kind of this lower reach of the rio grande there's parts of the pecos river and of course they extended to new mexico which we did not survey and and i can't really comment on how they're doing up there in the pecos river but um they seem to be present in Texas still. Okay. It's very cool. And we want them to be protected, but it's great that they don't have to be at this point. So I, I agree with Alex. That's, that's good news. Um, so I, before I let you go, I, I, I do, uh, I didn't mention this at the start of the show, but you are also, um, I'm going to call you the chief editor or the, the main editor of Herp Review, Herpetological Review. Uh, and you've been, uh, in doing that for a while now, not quite a year. Uh, you took over last summer. Correct. Say. So, um, I, I thought we'd talk to you a little bit about that because, uh, not only do you have, uh, this full-time job, uh, flying drones and whatnot and saving spotted black spotted newts, but you also have the Herp review. Um, and so I'm very lucky to talk to you at all, I think, because <laughs> I, I <laughs> you're just a busy guy. So how's it been for you to, to be, number one, how's it been for you to take over the editorship? And, and can you talk about, uh, uh, you have other people that help you with this, right? It's not like you're in your office 24-7 uh, <laughs> putting this out on your own. There's other people that are involved in helping you put this together. Correct. Yeah, there's an amazing team of folks that I get to work with and, and really help push these issues through. So yeah, I, I became editor. I took over the editor position from Bob Hansen, Robert Hansen, last June. And Bob was sort of not the, was a very, was a long-standing editor 
for 30 years of the journal. So that's 120 issues of Herp Review that Bob published as editor. And of course, you know, I don't know what, you know, working back, I guess that's the the 90s, early 90s is when he took over. But he, and if you, if you have those issues, you can go look at them on your shelf. But the journal changed a lot in that time. It has changed dramatically and for the better. And it's this now very visual, you know, tons of photographs, uh, you know, and, and sort of makes this journal stand out amongst a lot of other uh, herpetological journals that we, that are out there. Um, but yeah, we, you know, I have this, I'm working on my, you know, we've, we've, I've published three issues now. Um, we just published the March one a few weeks ago, working on the June one. And yeah, there's an amazing team. So I, as editor, of course, you know, handle, um, you know, kind of the submissions of articles and techniques, papers and um, history and, and nomenclature and, and things like that. But we have an amazing team of, of section editors and um, that sort of are tasked with handling other large components of the journal. And that's are things like the natural history notes. And so, you know, these are short observations mm-hmm. of, of, you know, uh, an aspect of a species, natural history or behavior, predator prey interactions, um, you know, uh, mortality, predation, diet, uh, reproduct, you know, just little tidbits of information that, you know, they themselves really wouldn't be published in a full length article, right? It's just a limited observation. But the, I think there's a lot of power in these sort of limited observations, you know, kind of collectively, right? You know, that, yeah, you you, you notice something in, in one turtle in, you know, your neck of the woods and so on and so, you know, sees it one time over here. And right, then someone can sort of draw on all these power, these observations kind of collectively to sort of understand or help understand the natural history of an organism. And right, and in our day and age, I think we still have, you know, species are still poorly understood. And we don't know a lot about the natural history and there's not a lot of funding for natural history work, um, just sort of learning about that of, of a species. But those are critically important aspects of a species biology in order to understand these larger issues that are going on, right? Um, movement and, and species interactions, things like that. So yeah, natural history notes are a big section of what we publish every issue. And of course we have multiple uh, section editors that handle different sort of taxonomic groups. We have uh, you know amphibians, turtles, lizards, and snakes are sort of the four groups. So we have four section editors that people would submit notes to. Um, we also, another big section is geographic distribution notes, um, which are sort of short notices, or sometimes they're larger because they're a bunch of records or um, a lot more comprehensive that sort of document species occurrence in, in novel habitats or new areas um, and sort of just document these animals across the landscape. And again, we have section editors for those, and those are divided up by uh, geographic locations. So North America, uh, well, I guess U.S. and Canada, and then we have Mexico and Central America and South America and, and um Asia and African section editors. So, you know, of course those get, you know, people would submit those directly to those section editors and they help, you know, review and, and format and check and, and, you know, those sorts of notes and submissions. And then I, then they come to me. Um, and then, you know, I of course review them as well. And, but yeah, we would then include them in an issue, but, but yeah. And then of course, you know, we do publish the only thing really Herp review doesn't publish is, is sort of taxonomic, uh, 
taxonomic work in the form of like new species descriptions and, and revisions to species complexes or splitting a species or elevating a species. Like we're not really, we don't do that, but really everything else. I mean, and then, you know, you can, you can open an issue and see that there's, you know, articles on sort of experimental studies, field studies. Um, we publish things on, on herpetoculture as well. So like, you know, breeding success and, and, you know, methods to get, you know, maybe imperiled species to breed in zoos. Uh, we have herp history, we have t- a taxonomy section, which is more about um, sort of nomenclature issues and uh, yeah, diseases. So, right. We sort of expand, you know, that started as a way to sort of quickly get some disease data published that hopefully then, you know, people can respond to or, or be aware of if, if they're working with these organisms you know, uh, a conservation section, points of views, letters to the editor, um, all the notes, the natural history notes, the zoo view section, which has uh, recently been taken over by uh, a new section editor there, uh, society news, obituaries. Yeah, there's lots of content in every issue. <laughs> I, I think I've shouted out Herp Review to our listeners before, but um, back when I was like 19 years old, a professor rec- uh, recommended Herp Review as as a kind of starter journal, as a easily accessible view into what was going on in herpetology at the current moment. And um, and I've been a member or a, a subscriber ever since. And it's really and it's like the only journal that I actually subscribe to and get delivered to my doorstep every each quarter. It is it's awesome for all the reasons you just said, but also because it's just so accessible to to anyone. So if any of our listeners want to take another slightly deeper step into kind of academic herpetology while still having all sorts of maybe Articles of broader appeal, like book reviews and news and obituaries and and rancorious taxonomic debates over what a subspecies is or isn't. Uh, <laughs> you should subscribe to uh, Herp Review. It is just, yeah, it's it's a great way to support a herpetological society and to to keep abreast of all the cool goings on. So, yeah, props to Drew for. Uh, for taking the helm. It is an important job and, and they do great work. Thank you. And and I see that you're continuing the uh, the great covers too. That's <laughs> one of the, the earmarks of Herp Review is just absolutely fantastic cover uh, photographs. Um, you, you guys somehow get the best of the best. <laughs> and it, it's always, it's always something um, appropriate. It's, it's not like, um, you know, if it's a frog, it's not a frog, uh, in, you know, some, it's not somebody's pet frog or anything. It's, it's this, you know, it's a great shot of, uh, this frog at night in the forest where it lives and it's, you know, in place and it's, it just, um, you know, an amazing shot so that it, it's, um, it, it always feels really appropriate. The covers do. And it, it, you look at them and you go, wow, that's a great, that's a great shot. I don't know how you guys keep that up, but that's amazing. Yeah. And just I'll, I'll plug, you know, you know, anybody can submit a photo, um, 
you know, a, a photo cover or, you know, a photo to be considered for the cover. And, you know, we accept those all, all the time. There's not oh. just a small window when you need to submit something. Um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that we do, you know, we try to have, uh, you know, the, their vertical and orientation, right. That's the magazine layout. So they, they have to, most people, a lot of people take, you know, horizontal, um, or landscape photos, but, you know, we, vertical pictures, um, sort of, you know, minimal processing, you know, kind of, especially if you can sort of show or, or capture in aspects of this species, natural history, or it's doing something, you know, or in its habitat, you know, just something, and especially obscure species or, or ones that we don't know much about. Right. So, I mean, like we have, I mean, I'm sure everybody, every field herper has photos of, of Western diamondback rattlesnakes, right. You know, like they've been photographed enough. We probably would not ever publish a photo of a, of a Western diamondback rattlesnake, but right. Certainly <laughs> obscure species, or if you travel internationally and, and, you know, there's a ton of diversity, you know, there's just very few photos of, of some of these reptiles and amphibians in the, in the sort of public uh, record. I mean, we just, you know, some species are just, they're either cryptic or, or very rare or, or in these really remote places. And so, but, you know, taking photos of those, I mean, we, we, we would love, we love considering, um, any of that stuff. You don't have to be a member. There's, you know, anybody can submit stuff and, um, we accept them on our rolling deadline. So, uh, but yeah, fortunately for that, I'm not as, you know, Bob Hansen was, it has an amazing, uh, photographic guy and, and he himself is a great photographer. Um, I am not so much that, um, but, uh, but, you know, so, but I have a, there's a great team of folks that help review and, and yeah, um, evaluate these photos that I'm able to sort of just, you know, that we kept in place, of course, when, with this transition and leadership, but they're still helping out with, with these, uh, with these covers and helping choose and, uh, select these photos. We did a weird one in December and it was the first time we've had one like that. So, you know, most of our photos are of course an animal and in, in, in nature and its, you know, habitat. Um, but you know, December issue, which seemed to get a lot of buzz and actually people were quite excited for was, were, um, it was an alligator lizard from uh, it's, it's weird to say photographer, but it was, but um, Ed Stanley at university of Florida, you know, does a lot of, of CT scans and um, sort of digit uh, digitizing some of these, you know, museum specimens and sort of, you know, visualizing sort of, in, in this case, it's, it's multiple images of, of this alligator lizard that, or a plated lizard or armadillo lizard, I'm not sure, but uh, you know, and it shows different, uh, body system. So there's a skeletal system. I think it's a, a nerve system and digestive system. And so, right, this sort of this amazing technology that sort of things are moving towards and it's not, you know, and, and a lot of people really enjoyed that as a cover instead of, you know, a photo of that animal in, you know, in its native habitat. So, so that was a pretty cool cover to, to be able to publish and share with folks. Cause I think it, it definitely piqued their interest. I thought that was awesome. It was like, blown away by the detail just like all the other um all the other issues it was like artistically beautiful and uh a species that we don't know very much about and we got to see all of its insides on the cover in in just beautiful artistry it was it was well done it was fantastic let let me back this up just a moment too um to something we talk about putting in um, natural history notes and things like that. So I, I am not a scientist, but uh, perhaps um, the, I happen to 
run across a five line skink in my, in my County. And there, there's no records of five line skinks from my County. And I photo documented, and I put it in her mapper or whatever. I, and, uh, but I could also submit something to her review about that. Could I not? I don't have to be a scientist to do this. Correct. No, I mean, um, I think the a, a great appeal of this journal is that it's a lot of people's first, like sort of like Alex mentioned. I know he he was exposed to it very early on. I don't know if he published in it when he was nineteen. I'm not sure, but you know, like a lot of young scientists or early you know students, and even even you know just hurt minded folks or people that are you know kind of conscious of, of species and looking for stuff can publish stuff in here, and and that's great. And there's no there's no charges, of course, for any of that. Um, you know, you don't have to be a member of the society. Anybody can do it. Of course, you know, we want you to sort of write it up in a way. I mean, so like things like county record notes are very formulaic. And so it's, you know, they're very easy to write because they're, you know, we kind of ask for this, you know, kind of the same pieces of information that you just kind of plug and play and, and can draft up this note, hopefully pretty quickly. But yeah, no, anybody can do it. Um, and we would encourage it. And so, yeah, I mean, it obviously it may take a little legwork if you, depending on what state you're in and sort of knowing where, you know, what, what's been published and what's been documented in your counties and, or your parishes, you know, just for that state you're in and, and that region, um, maybe someone's already published that. I'm not sure, but you know, a lot of sections of Herp review, not the entire thing, unless you're a member, but a lot of sections of Herp review are available open access online. And that just means the there's sections, right? We talked about some of these sections like natural history notes. That's a section geographic distribution notes. That's a section like those are, those are available open access. So those are just posted every time we finalize an issue, we post those online. And so those sections, anybody can come and download those sections and read through them and things like that. Now, other sections are behind um, kind of a paywall that, you know, we, we would like you to be a society member to, to receive, but, um, but yeah, lo- a lot of content is still available publicly for free that people, anybody can come and download and read those sections or, you know, again, if you're trying to, to piece together things on like, is this five line skink a county record? You know, you can go back on these past issues and, you know, uh, download those sections and, and search through them and say, Oh yeah, there was none in this issue or, Oh, no, there was one published in the last June issue. I'm not sure, but yeah, no, it, anybody can do it. Sure. And uh, it's a great format for, for sort of the, your, your first people's first publications. And I think that's a big appeal for the journal and, and how we draw in so much because we get a lot of young blood uh, to the society that way. And I think that's great. So. Very good. Thanks for, for digging into that a little bit. Um, well, I, I've kept you guys for an hour and 20 minutes. I appreciate your, your time. Um, Alex, you have any more questions or issues you want to talk about? No, we, we brought up all the things uh, that I want to talk about. In fact, Looking for chicken turtles in North Carolina was uh, something that I wanted to try with drones, and now I'm even more excited to to give it a shot. Figure out how we can get around those tannic waters and trees and all that. Um, yeah, I'm I'm excited by it, and I appreciate you walking us through. You're it. fired up. You're, yeah, you're fired definitely. up. Okay, definitely. All good. Yeah, and who doesn't like a chicken turtle? <laughs> no one. <laughs> I dare you to find me someone who doesn't like a chicken turtle. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, and, and Drew, how about you? Have we, have we covered everything on, yeah. your, on your uh, drone topic? And 
Yeah, um, no, I mean it it again, it's it's not a one size fits all thing, but hopefully, you know, those those considering, you know, drone work or, you know, maybe you can can find some use and and this is somewhat helpful with help, you know, help get their ideas or their projects sort of off the ground. Uh, certainly, yeah, the habitats you're in are, are going to likely differ from the Rio Grande. So there's going to be some adjustments that are going to have to be made. But um, but I think it's it's worth the time. It's worth the time sort of figuring out and, and figuring out what works for your system and, and for your project. Because I think there's a lot of utility in drone work. Drones aren't going away. You know, they're going to be a, a bigger part of, of sort of wildlife research and, and, and biology or landscape research too. Um, and so kind of embracing that and, and kind of working them in is going to hopefully pay dividends in the future. Bus are cool. They are. <laughs> They're just cool. <laughs> and, uh, I'll, I'll put a, a link out there for this paper. Uh, and of course people uh, listening, you know, they can also, um, send me a note and I'll, uh, I'll send you a copy of the paper too. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll buy for past you, Drew. I mean, you can always mail, email the offer, but you're a busy guy, so I'll take <laughs> this off your back for you. Perfect. And uh, and Alex, I want to say congratulations on your new position and uh, at at Tangled Bank Conservation. I mean, Director of Conservation Genomics. That's pretty crazy, man. You you got it. Yeah, it's a fun one. We do a lot of a lot of different work, a lot of fun work, and kind of like the paper we were talking about today, it's, it's all conservation focused. And yeah, we do a lot of work for these species status assessments of, of various things that are proposed to be listed. And it's cool. It's fun. I like it a lot. You're excited. And yeah. genomics is now a component of conservation, which is pretty, I, pretty cool. I think it should be. Like drones, it is it's <laughs> new newer, I would say. Not as new as drones, but... Um, it's newer, and so it sometimes takes people convincing people to to show them the utility of it. But but I do think it is very useful, um, especially when when applied right, and and we do that. And by the time this show airs, I will have already. In fact, it comes out this coming Sunday. I will have an episode out with uh, your boss, yeah, uh, JJ Apodaca, and he'll be talking about. Uh, Tangle Bank Conservation and uh, some other things. So uh, we had a w- really good talk, and uh, and so um, I'm looking forward to getting that one out. So yeah, I'm excited to to hear it as well. Yeah, so uh, it's it's funny. It's a small world. All these things. Uh, it's not like I'm just. Uh, I had no idea you were actually working for JJ when I talked to JJ about. <laughs> coming on the show and he's like yeah well i got alex on board and i'm like oh my gosh it's a small yep. world this is and cool. so, yeah that was like a week or two before i saw you in florida and so jj told me he's like hey i heard you know mike finkelton and i was like are you kidding i'm gonna see him in florida in like a week and so yeah it is it is quite a small world yeah well gentlemen thank you again for coming on the show i'm Enjoy talking to you guys and uh, look forward to the next time I can see either one of you <laughs> in uh, somewhere, somewhere cool, uh, somewhere warm, hopefully. Uh, but uh, thank, yeah, thanks again. And uh, Drew, good luck with your, your uh, work with Herp Review and, and uh, your um, Newt conservation work and anything else you're working on. Thanks. Yeah. Appreciate it. All right. That's it for episode 63. 
Thank you so much, Drew, for your time and for a fantastic conversation. And thanks, as always, to Alex for making Herb Science Sunday possible. And thanks once more to all of the So Much Bingo patrons who have gotten the show all the way to a third season. Much appreciated. And if you'd like to help kick in a few bucks to support the show, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much bingle and so much bingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much bingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much And you can also join the so much bingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at somuchpingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves and don't forget to hurt better. 